Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crypt, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, August 12th, 2013. During this week in history, in 1969, the Woodstock Music Festival opened in Bethel, New York. Over a half a million people attended this three-day music extravaganza, making it one of the biggest rock festivals of all time. Hey there, Kickstarters. I'm four-time Hugo Award winner, Frank Wood. For the last three years, we've been working on the video game Revolution 60. So they can't jettison you out of the airlock, then they actually need you. Not yet, not until the game ships. <laughs> then I can be jettisoned out of the airlock. I figured the airlock was right around the corner, someone getting kicked out. Yeah, that's right. I think also you have the ability to read my mind a little bit. I think that's, uh, that's what's going on here. I know, and you were so hopped up on sugar doing that video, man, on Kickstarter. <laughs> the video itself was a lot of fun, and we tried to make it funny, and again, I have to attribute my wife to that because she wrote the script. But we wanted to really touch on some things about making video games that people don't think about because so many people are like, yeah, I can make a video game, I can make a MMO in my basement, I can make this huge game, it'll take like, two days and it'll be awesome. And it'll cost like $5 and I'll make millions and millions of dollars. And they're insane because they just don't understand like how much programming that I have to know and how many art assets they have to make and how hard it is to get the voice acting right and the music. And it just takes so much time and effort and people just don't understand that. And we tried to, you know, make a joke about it, but really, Making a video game is really, really hard. Now, in saying that, tell me or bring the life Revolution 60 for me on PC or Mac or PC and Mac. What's it all about? Okay, Revolution 60 is our video game that we're going to first release on iOS, and then, um, assuming the Kickstarter all goes through, PC and then Mac. And what it is, it's a mix of Mass Effect and Heavy Rain. So you get these choices as you go along, some minor choices like dialogue choices, but also some really important ones like plot choices that will affect what kind of ending that you have. So you will have multiple endings. And it's fully 3D animated and we have full voice acting with people like Amanda Winley, who's an anime star. And the story itself, is about an all-female team of special agents that work for this black ops organization called Chessboard. And the deal is that there's N313, which is this American orbital weapons platform designed by me. And this American orbital weapons platform has gone adrift for some reason, and it's in geostationary orbit over China. Okay. And the China, Chinese are not very happy about it. Yeah, that's not good. No, no, that's, that's not good at all. So, international incident, the Chinese send up a bunch of guys, they take it over, and your job, you play Holiday, one of the female agents who's an assassin, your job is to go back and take the station back over for the Americans. And if you fail this mission, it will mean an all-out nuclear war. So no pressure. No pressure. Man, you must be Black Ops if that's no pressure. But see, the thing is, the cool thing about Black Ops is that it's Black Ops to not just the enemy, but also your friends, are you? And like the Black Ops organization that you work for, are they good or bad? I mean, how can you trust the Black Ops organization anymore? You just, you oh just yeah, can't. that's true. That that went out in the 60s probably. That's right, yeah, with Watergate and yeah. war and stuff. Yeah, you can't trust the Black Ops organization anymore. I'm starting to like you, man, because any person who can use orbital platform and stuff in Black Ops has to be cool, man. You have to be in the know. Yeah, geostationary orbit. I know. Geosynchronous, all of that, yeah. See, I have a PhD in bacterial genetics. You probably went to the same place I went for my quantum string hole physics joint. Yeah, I probably did. Yeah. So, like, one of the cool things is we play a lot with gravitons and anti-gravitons. Yeah. So, for example... The female agents have these special boots that, and in the soles of their boots, they have these anti-graviton uh, emitters. And so like when they're in, in space, on a space station, 
where there may or may not be gravity, they can still stick to the walls and floors and ceilings and whatever because their boots are emitting these anti-gravitons. And if they need to jump really far, because like you see all these video games where like people jump like 20 or 30 feet, and like, there's no way, that can't happen. But in our universe, it can. And it's not because of the matrix, but it's because they have anti-graviton emitters in their boots that help them jump really far. I might have said the earlier thing wrong. Like they can stick to things because they have gravitons that emit from their boots, but they also emit anti-gravitons. Right, it can either go plus or minus. Plus or minus, yeah, exactly. Now I saw a lot of like butt kicking type of women on there. It's like they kick butt and ask questions later. My wife Brianna designed all the girls and she's been drawing these sort of anime style, tall skinny girls like her whole life. She's also a tall oh, skinny girl, good. so. Kind of a cool justification there. So she's been drawing these anime style girls her entire life, and this video game gets to be like, like her life's work in 3D with voice acting and music and cool editing and, and cool animation. So it's kind of like a culmination of everything that she's been doing since she was um, she was little. Do you think it's like a psychological thing with your wife? Because I've known some artists that. Every picture they draw, it's really just a picture of themselves. I don't know. Uh, there might be some of that because, like, our main character, Holiday, you know, like Rihanna is tall and skinny and kicks ass and is really confident and awesome and smart, just like my wife. And she also rides a motorcycle, which, uh, which Brianna wow. does too. Man, your wife, I mean, she's like the epitome of, of the Rev 60, man. I'm afraid of her, man. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> She has someone to be taken Yeah, seriously. man, I could tell that the way you spoke in reverence of her in the video, man. I was like, oh my gosh, she's a little scary, man. I love this girl. <laughs> tell her I love her too. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell her that. Okay. One of the cool things about the game itself is that, so we have uh, an all-female cast, which most games don't have, and most of the development team, other than me, is also all-female, which is, again, unusual in this industry. And it's not like it was necessarily planned that way, but it just kind of worked out that way. And, I don't know, you can draw your own conclusion from that, but yeah, girl power. Cool spaceships oh, designed yeah. by me. We cannot leave out your contribution to the world. Please say what you've contributed to this game one more time. I gotta get that in. So my role is designing cool right. spaceships and cool backgrounds. Like I get to to make like the space station with all the spinning rings and uh, spaceships that look all pointy and scary. And if he didn't do this part, the whole game would just implode. It would collapse under the weight of itself and all the other women and stuff. So they needed. I, can't, I don't know if it's in the X or Y gene. I can I never chromosome. I, I get that part, but they needed what he had. So that's what that's why he's the, the person at the table. Now, for anyone out there on Kickstarter, I'm telling you, I pushed play on the game. It was Rev 60. I wasn't sure, but the graphics were colorful. So I pushed play. And all of a sudden, you got all these women coming out there. It's just like G-Force, but we're all women. It's totally cool, man. What that was that right, G Force? So it'd still be like girl force, but with all women. I know that's redundant, doesn't make any sense. But go to Kickstarter.com and type in Revolution 60 and you'll see for yourself. Well, I really appreciate it, DK. This is this is really fun. Three generations later and a whole lot of field testing. I believe I've come up with the ultimate ultralight cooking combination. A stand made from high quality 20 gauge polished stainless steel that's two inches tall, weighs less than an ounce, and has an open diameter of over seven inches. It allows me to cook for a group of more than two or three easily and quickly. Peter, right? Welcome yes, to sir. Okay, all right. What's the name of your company? Uh, I call it Critter, Camp Stove. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good name for that, that nice little product you have there, lightweight and all camp stove. I can't tell you I know much about camping and I kind of got kicked out of the Cub Scout so I never really made it that far. <laughs> I watched a video and you, did I hear it right? It's taking you 40 years to get this formula down? No, four years. Oh, okay, four years. Okay, all right. 
Man, okay, so it's taken you four years to get this formula down of this camp stove, and I believe you said in your video that your wife believes it's it's almost like an obsession or has become an obsession to you? Oh, yeah. She's probably not that far off either. It really has become something that I, I obsess about. <laughs> I don't think there's a day that goes by I don't think about how I can make the thing better. Why are you so driven for this teeny tiny camping stove Flotation device or some pot flotation. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. <laughs> Why are you so driven to perfect this thing, man? When you're 24 hours from any fast food joint or anything like that, you got to be able to eat when you're out in the wilderness. We go in 15 miles one way, and what you have is what you have with you. So you carry it in on your back, you portage it. If you get there and you don't eat very well, as far as I'm concerned, you don't have good food, it's not going to be a fun trip. And which state is this where we're doing all this camping at? Minnesota. People in Minnesota think with their stomachs, just like people everywhere else, I guess. You got to go up to the northeast arrowhead of Minnesota, and you'll find the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. And that's where I go every year. I've been going there for 18 years now. Beautiful, beautiful place. I call it my one week of sanity that I get to go up there. You take your wife with you? No. Her idea of camping is a 28-foot camper with a shower and refrigerator so i couldn't convince her if i tried to go in there but okay. i go with my dad and i go with my brother and i've got a cousin that goes with us so there's a group of four that goes every year why don't you tell me what this device is well the part that i created is actually just a, a camp stove stand the stoves themselves have been around for a long long time and i've, I've put my own little twist on them i tweaked them a little bit they're denatured alcohol or alcohol camp stoves made out of pop cans oh i see that the cool part about it is is you know, they're using pop cans, so it's kind of like recycling for a whole different purpose. But when I make these, I don't use any JB Weld or anything to hold them together. It's precision fit for the two ends to go together so that they don't come apart. So there's no adhesives you have to worry about ever coming loose or drying up. I use a fastener. It's a thumb screw in the middle, and I use an aluminum threaded screw in there. I see that. Um, and that's where you put the alcohol in. That's actually how you fill the stove with fuel, and then you put it back in there. It's really, really simple. This thing will work anywhere and short of crushing it flat on the ground it'll still work where i've really kind of started with the whole stand thing was is i really didn't find anybody that made a stand for them per se there's a lot of different options out there some people use chicken wire some people just use a coat hanger and bend it up and right i'm a creative mind so i started thinking well you know what could i do to make this a little bit easier and design something that's actually useful for me you know fix the frustration i have so that's when I came up with this little stand that's only about two inches tall. So see that. kind of the unique part about it is, is I'll try to get it close enough here. Is you see the little groove where my finger is. Right. You know, that's designed to cradle the stove so it can't slip out of there and it can't fall out. So the stove isn't sitting on the ground. It's actually up off the ground. So no matter how you set this thing, unless it's actually tipped over, you're going to be able to cook on it. But your stand... It's two sides or something, or kind of flexes as an X or something in the middle? It's a three. Three. Oh, okay, try. Okay, gotcha. To be honest with you, you know, I, I really like this one, but I've gotten a lot of feedback from different people about it and got my mind thinking, and I'm actually working on refining this design a little bit further to make it even smaller. You mean the Kickstarter community's messed up your design? They've been putting ideas into your head? No, it's not just them, though. It's, uh, you know, even my father, he's, he's one of them that camps with me. He's given me some cool ideas to make it better. And I just finally finished up the design a little bit today. And I've got a, a rendering out there on Kickstarter. I'm giving my backers a sneak peek and I'm giving them the ability to tell me what they, which one they like better. Do they like the original design or do they like my concept design? So far, the response back is overwhelmingly they like the new concept. And the new concept actually adds a few features. Like the bottom of this stand, the original stand right here is smooth back here. Right. I've added some teeth. I call them critter grip. So that when you set them on an uneven surface, it'll actually kind of help grip the ground or a rock that you're setting it on. The other purpose for it is, is like if you flip it upside down, this can actually be used with a small wood fire underneath it to cook in emergency situations. So say you lost your stove or you ran out of fuel and you still need to cook or you got to boil water for drinking. You can actually start a little bit of a, a fire underneath this thing. And with the teeth on the outer edge of this arm here, it'll allow it to still hold your pans pretty sturdy so that it won't slide off when you're cooking. So that's one feature. The other feature I added to it was when these are collapsed right now, it's, it's pretty small and it's really, really super thin. So you got to have a fingernail to get in there to open them up. So what I've done is I've added tabs to them 
I call easy open tabs. They're offset so that you can just kind of twist your fingers and it opens them up for you. And it makes it real easy to open the stand up. Now, since we're on radio and people can't see all the stuff that we're describing. So you have pictures and all of this, you know, like extra video of the prototype and, and everything that you're explaining to me right now so they can take a closer look, right? Like I said, I'm giving the sneak peek to my backers. I've got 39 backers right now worldwide, which is awesome. I'm giving them <laughs> the opportunity to see the concept first since they're the ones that have jumped on board. And I really do appreciate each and every one of their support because this is kind of like a little dream of mine to be able to show a solution to a frustration I had and be able to share it with the rest of the world. Okay, you have those beautiful 39 trusting souls on Kickstarter. Okay, I love those guys. But you need about 70 backers. So you need like 30 more. And we need to see the improvements. We want to back you. I'll give it to you. Like I said, I wanted to show it to them first, and I'll be putting it out on my Kickstarter page here in the next day or so, so everybody can see it. You know, I'm I'm doing everything I can. I, I, I tell my wife, I said, you know what? I'm shamelessly advertising this anywhere I possibly can. I've got a shirt made up with the logo on it. I wear it whenever I possibly can. Right. I've gone out and talked to, I can't tell you how many nights I've stayed up on Facebook, found different groups and communities to show this to. And Don't go to LinkedIn and become a shameless promoter. They blocked me. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I am on LinkedIn. I've got it on there kind of as a valid way because I've entered in as a skill as an inventor. <laughs> and this is my project. So okay. hopefully they don't block it. And now that Peter and I have both admitted to being shameless promoters he and i both want you to go to kickstarter.com and type in it's the critter right yep go to kickstarter.com type in exactly what he said because i can't repeat it and if you can't find it there we'll shamelessly promote his product on djgrandpa.com peter thanks for coming on the show and i hope you're living well in the great state of minnesota i appreciate your time On this week's segment of Meet the Crowd, we meet Chad Copian, a patent and trademark attorney out of Highland, Utah. I've known Chad for about 10 years now, and I'm happy to have him on the show. Chad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Let's just start off by playing this clip from a guest who was on the show roughly two months ago who had a complaint of kind of, of like the wolves at bay. Hi, my name is Vito, I'm product designer and engineer. Today I would like to show you my invention, which is a concept of flying car. I call COEs asking me, they want to be my executive cell for the USA, Australia, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, you call it. Oh, distributors. And all those guys with the suit and the glasses thinking how to grab a bit of profit for themselves. If you read the contract very carefully, there is always two, three tricks trying to grab you or grab your pocket or something like that. Because I was, I was proposed about five contracts. Right. I couldn't afford the solicitor, so I sent to the university legal advisor. And the guy said, listen, this contract just basically, in smart words, tries to enslave you for life. I said, what? That it says that when the project is going to be finished, you have to always be involved. If it's going to be a failure, you have to cover with your pockets. But when I read it first time myself, I'm doing PhD, I'm not considering myself being stupid. But when I read it, I couldn't see anything like that. They use no. such a smart word, legal words, that, you know, I'm scared to sign any paper. <laughs> I'm scared to sign any papers. <laughs> He's from the United Kingdom, and he put out a prototype flying car. Right. And he raised roughly 200,000 pounds on Kickstarter. Right. And the premise is basically that all these people in shiny suits and glasses, they're all coming to these different project creators and saying that they're the crowdfunding expert. And if right. you want to raise X amount of money, you, you should pay my services. And they're handing different contracts to them. And they're saying that the contracts are twisted, that they take over all sorts of distribution rights that they're, they owe the money even if the project doesn't succeed and, you know, this, that, and the third. There's some truth to that. There are some shady folks that try to glom on 
where they can raise money, keep a bunch of that money for themselves. And if it hits, they benefit. And if it doesn't hit, then they still try to benefit. I guess the best advice is to hire your own lawyer that you trust, preferably an intellectual property lawyer that has some experience in this world in doing licensing in helping with development agreements and helping with funding agreements and have them review it. There's never anything wrong with getting your own personal attorney to review whatever else another attorney tries to sell you. It can save you a lot of heartache if there's a lot of money and a lot of risk involved. I had one question. I mean, I know you always go back to, or in general, industry standard, I believe. You always go back to you get what you pay for. But what if you're a project creator and, you know, most of these people, it feels as though they put all their money into trying to get the project just created and on Kickstarter. Sure. You being an intellectual property attorney, are there some things that they could maybe walk in the door with that it would maybe cut down some of the costs so they could afford services of an intellectual property attorney? There are a lot of ways to make using intellectual property a little cheaper, especially on the front end. Eventually, it, it ends up having to be expensive if you go through the whole process. But there are two types of, well, there are several types, but the two types of patents that I'm going to mention right now are provisional patents and then full utility patents. A provisional patent can be filed for very cheap. You know, you can get them done as, as little as 1000 to $2,000 per provisional. Mm -hmm. A provisional is basically a doorstop that gives you one year to develop out and also provides some protection to you in the meantime. So it's, like I said, kind of like a doorstop that just holds the door open for a year and hopefully prevents others from infringing in your space in that time. It right. can also help scare off some people that are trying to take advantage of you, like the audio you played for me. Having a provisional patent in place or a patent application in place can help scare some of the less savory characters off. Additionally, you can also have a, a non-disclosure agreement written up and, and you can maybe even pull one off the internet by yourself so that when you're dealing with people and you have to kind of give them an idea of what your idea is and, and trying to raise money, using a non-disclosure agreement helps to keep them from turning around on the backside and trying to develop their own version of your product, basically trying to steal your idea or your project. Is there a link you could send me to maybe an online non-disclosure agreement that I could post for the listener? I think I could find one. And if not, there certainly are many services that will sell you one for 5 or $10. That's very nice of you, Chad. Well, thank you. So what are some things, me being a novice, me not knowing what I'm doing, what's something that I should not let you get away with, you know, during this interview, that information that I should get out of you? I think for a, a new developer, particularly something that can be patented, the best advice I can give is remember that a patent is not a gold mine. A patent is a business tool. The point of raising money on Kickstarter is to, in other ways, is to get your product out, get it developed, get it marketed, get it sold. A patent helps to extend your ability to do that, but it does not create. If you have a patent, no one's going to show up at your door and say, hey, can I buy this? You still have to do all the hard work of development and marketing and sales. So make sure you have a business plan in place to get your product up and running, get it out before you spend a lot of money on a patent attorney or any intellectual property. Okay. Now, you have to get your information out there. Everybody's selling a book. So what's your information? I mean, what's your specialty? And how could you help a project creator on Kickstarter? My specialty is patent law and trademarks. That includes applying for and it's called prosecuting, which means getting the patents and trademarks through the United States Patent and Trademark Office. I can also help with litigation matters or cease and desist letters when somebody does come along and tries to step on your tail a little bit. I can be contacted. The easiest way is, is just call me. My number is 801-755-1296, and I can be reached, and I'm happy to take your call. All initial consultations are free. I want to make sure you understand what you're getting before you pay any money. Secondly, you can always reach me at my website, which is www.fchad.com copier.com, which is my name, and um, gives you my contact information through that. You know, everybody's going to want to know, how much is a patent or trademark going to cost? With trademarks and patents, there are always government fees, and those change from time to time, usually up. 
So for a trademark, if you're using an attorney, expect to pay about $900 for a simple trademark. And that includes the patent office fees. If you're filing a patent, the price can vary quite a bit depending on the complexity of the patent, whether or not you're getting a design or a utility. But let's assume a utility, which is the most common kind of patent. You're looking at between six dollars to $10,000 to get it filed in the first place. And then depending on how the process goes, there will be additional additional money. But start to finish, you should expect to pay for a patent that is successful that issues between ten and twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars. Wow, that's a lot of money. So you might do the provisional before the Kickstarter if if you have those type of funds and That's exactly right. The one in stone, I guess, after yeah. the Kickstarter has been successful. Okay. All right. right. Okay. In fact, I love dealing with small startup inventors. The thing I love most about my job is interacting with people who come up with ideas and people who are trying to make it work. When I see them become successful, that makes my day. If I'm in a rush, I have to know how long is all this this whole legal thing going to take? When you apply for a trademark, assuming that everything's square and we're good, there's nothing holding it up, you should have your trademark registered in about six months to nine months. For a patent, from the time you file to the time it issues, anywhere between two to five years. No, I got you. And it's to keep you out of legal jeopardy, I guess. Maybe that would be a word. That's exactly right. The other thing I do is I offer a fixed fee, which means the costs are going to be known right away. I'm not charging by the hour. I'm charging by the job so that they know what the costs are. They can call me up as often as they want and ask me whatever questions they want. I'm serious when I say when I see young inventors or, or new inventors, when I see their product take off and I see their company do well, that's my payoff. Do you have a track record with this whole patent and trademark thing, especially with young inventors and creators? Do you have a track record with that type of community? I do. It's just worked out this way, but I have several clients that came to me just as individuals. We helped them put together a company. I helped them with their IP. They got their product out and moving. And and now a few of the companies that I did intellectual property for are multi-million dollar, well, million plus a year sales. And ironically, almost every company that's done well has been woman started. So you're female friendly. Well, apparently. (laughs) I don't know why that's the case, but it kind of worked out that way over the last 15 years. Now, if I'm very suspicious... And I need references or I need to check this out. Is it on your site? Are there references? Can you be easily Googled and I can find out this information? Yes, you can Google and you will see some of the patents I've worked on. You'll see other listings. I was recently named a uh, rising star attorney in Utah by uh, Salt Lake Magazine. I'm listed in, in several attorney uh, rating companies, uh, reputable. So, And then if they want to ask questions of some of my other clients, I... I'm happy to forward that on as well. If anyone has any questions for Chad, you can always send them to me or go to, well, he'd prefer that you go to his website. But if you're like the shy type of person and you need a go-between like DJ Grandpa himself, go to djgrandpa.com and just ask me, leave a message, post a comment, and we will gladly forward it to Chad. That, but that's only if you're too shy to talk to him yourself. But he's, he's a very approachable person. Chad, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here and I appreciate the forum. What's so great about records like this is the songs themselves. I mean, the players are great. Louis Armstrong and Oscar Peterson are some of my favorite players of all time. But part of the reason they sound so great is because they're not overplaying. They're just playing the song as it is. And it's a beautiful song, so it's easy to love. I'm Carsey. I'm here in New Orleans in the Treme, and um, everything's really great. Everything's just peachy over here. How old are you, actually? I am 28 years old. Oh, yes, your Kickstarter. The way you represented yourself, I thought it was very exciting. I thought it was pretty cool, unique, and all that. Cool. A little cheeky, you know, a little bit, a little bit. I've been known to be a little cheeky from time to time. Serious? It's true. It's what they say about me. I've never used that word in my life, cheeky, before. <laughs> so I was just trying it out. You're right on. Now, you're also another one of these YouTube stars 
coming from one platform to another. I've been seeing it happen a lot over the months. A little bit, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, are they whispering on YouTube now that, dude, I heard on Kickstarter, it's like being a star all over again. Well, I wouldn't say I'm really a YouTube star. I have one music video that has a lot of hits, but I'm not actually in the video. So I think the area where my fans come from is actually live performance. So I've been touring and performing for about six years, doing at least 100 shows a year. And um, that's where most of my people come from, is seeing me play live. Now, if you're going to do a country album, you're going to yeah. have to increase that show amount by two. So oh, yeah? Because it's, it's, they, they do like 200 dates a year. I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to tour less and spend more time at home in New Orleans. <laughs> I like the city. I like the music. I like the people. Everything's better in the South. No offense. <laughs> I think you make statements just to get a, a reaction. That's what I think. Well, I'm cheeky, like you said. <laughs> yeah, don't, 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 don't use my words against me, though. I mean, that's unfair. Two sleepy people by dawn's early light. Too much in love to say goodnight. In your video, I didn't like what you said. You said that jazz wasn't for black people or just for people who couldn't dance. <laughs> I didn't like that. I mean, I could respect it or whatever, and that's cool. So you think jazz is just for black people and people who can dance? Not really. I, I don't care. I just, I just felt like a, saying that I didn't like what you said. <laughs> <laughs> well, my point with that concept, with the whole album, is that jazz is, it's an art form that's about, you know, emotion and feeling, and that should be right. something that anybody can relate to. I think a lot of people feel left out of jazz these days they feel like oh it's only for black people or it's only for you know like fancy people or academic people or musicians or something like that a lot of people feel like it's not for them that's how they treat it in college like it's only yeah. for academics and stuff like that either way I think there's always some misconception oh it's for somebody else it's not for me and so I just want to do these songs in a way that anybody can listen to them and get what they're about and get the feeling I say that you can never tell who's affected by the power of a record. Yeah. And that's what I stick by or stick mm -hmm. to. I believe once you put a record out there, no matter if a black person makes it, a white person, Asian, mm -hmm. whatever, you don't know who it's going to affect. You don't know who it might touch and they dedicate their entire lives to it. So yeah. I don't care who made jazz or who, whatever as far as jazz. But I, I just kind of thought it was weird in the way you said it, so I, I like had to attack you on it. I don't feel attacked. Oh, come on, man. I got to be mean to you some you type of way. Attack, you got to try harder than that. Yeah, but I'm DJ Grandpa. I got to attack people. I got to be mean to people sometimes. Oh, you got to be a little meaner then, man. You're just not that mean. Oh, that's not cool. <laughs> I know what you're saying, and I was a little nervous when I made that video that people would be upset about that particular statement, jazz is not just for black people. But I do feel that way. I mean, I'm not black and I've always loved jazz. You know, I started listening to it when I was very young and I feel very affected by it and I feel moved by it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't want it to be something that I'm excluded from and I don't want it to be something anybody else is excluded from either. Yeah, but white people, never, white people never want to be excluded from anything. Well, nobody wants to be excluded from anything, especially music. Music is not about excluding people. It's about including people, don't you think? Yeah. Music is about being part of the human race. <laughs> if you have to ask me like that, I guess I, I have no other choice but to agree with you. <laughs> I want to be contrarian, but... I'm Jewish, so I'm not entirely white. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But we've all gotten mixed up since the 70s. Polish, Jewish, all of, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a different world. And I always feel like there's so many great jazz players that were Jewish. I've always felt like jazz music belonged to me as much as to anybody. <laughs> okay, on logic, you have me like 100%. Okay, I might not have liked the way you put it, but I only had to attack you on it. But then you won't even let me get that. So, I mean, sorry. yeah, that's all right. I mean, that way you stay in control, but as a host, I'm supposed to be in control. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? 
times when that's where you live your heart and there's something more i miss the one i care for more than i miss new orleans tell me more about this album because we need to promote you and your musical career. Not me, your career. <laughs> All right, well, here's what it's about for me. So I'm a songwriter. That's my main gig, and that's what I've been doing professionally for, you know, about six years now. I love songs. I love writing songs. And really what this album is about to me is me bringing my favorite songs of all time to a new audience. The people who listen to my music, a lot of them don't listen to jazz music. And what I want to do is bring this music to people who don't already know it. So I'm just trying to convey these songs in a way that feels really accessible to people so they can hear them and feel them and get what they're about. And even though, you know, these songs are 80 or 90 years old, and I don't think that matters. I think they're just as understandable as anything that's being written today, and I think they're better. So that's what the record is about to me, is just getting the songs across in a way that people really relate to. Okay. I never asked, what has been your musical background prior? Well, I grew up on folk music, and when I started playing, that was more the genre that I was sounding like or, you know, trying to sound like when I was a teenager. And then around the time I started playing and writing songs was the time I got into jazz. So my music has some influence from jazz. It has some influence from rock and roll and folk, and that's really what it's a mixture of, I would say. Okay, then. We got to fight over something, then. Okay. 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 What three jazz songs may be on this album and I want to know give me three three songs I'm going to do on this album yeah well I'm going to do Sweet Lorraine you know that one I know it but who's it by I like the Louis Armstrong and Oscar Peterson version best Louis Armstrong is like my favorite artist of all I mean I got a whole page of him but I mean Louis Armstrong so you can't is, argue with that right right I can't he's my favorite artist of all time so alright well how about uh, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? I'm going to do that one. That's another Louis classic, man. Louis did that, but my favorite version is Billie Holiday with Teddy Wilson. Okay, I may not have heard that one, but I still can't fault you on the, the selection. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. i got to give you something else to work with yeah, here. Yeah, okay, one more. Then. Now, let me see. A lot of them are lesser known. They're not. I'm not really doing standards. I'm doing sort of B-sides for the most part. That's so those okay. two... Those two are the better known ones. I'm doing uh, Two Sleepy People. Do you know that one? Nah, you That's got by me on that. Hoagie Carmichael. Oh, I love Hoagie Carmichael, though. Do you? Yeah, I might have to play him on um, on Spotify tonight, just because you reminded me. Oh, nice. I love you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two Sleepy People is my favorite song of his. It's an adorable song. <laughs> All right, I don't want you to give any away any more the album and stuff like <laughs> okay. that. I, I think we've paid for the interview. I think you... You've yeah. given enough blood. <laughs> all right. So. Well, you liked all my choices, though. I'm sorry I couldn't give you more to fight with. Well, anyway. <laughs> Cheeky is what you are. Well, that's why I noticed it in you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sure appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out to me, man. Oh, uh, no, really no. No problem. After you insulted me about the black comment and all, I figured out. <laughs> Figured I'd help you out. No, that wasn't I'd... an insult. Come on. It wasn't an insult, but I definitely <laughs> wanted to give you a hard time about it. No such thing as bad publicity. Right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, I don't believe that she just said that, that there's no such thing as bad publicity. But I think you need to check out what she said in the video for yourself. Yeah. Because I can't, I can't describe it enough. So go yeah, to right. kickstarter.com and type in Carsey Blanton. And jazz is for everybody. That's what I claim. Yeah, that's what she claims. And and (laughs) next she claims the next album is going to be a country album. Kenny Chesney and and Jason Aldean and stuff like that. But for right now, we're concentrating jazz is for everybody. Go to kickstarter.com and check it out. And if you can't find it there, we'll provide the most flavorful, jazziest links possible at djgrandpa.com. Carsey. Thanks for coming on this show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I said I'll go through fire And I'll go through fire As you once said Historical conquest, the card game. Use heroes from the past to protect your land and attack your opponents. 
Change the course of history. How's it going, Zach? Going, sir. It's going okay. You see if I get this straight. Your dream has been long and varied, kind of twisty road. You, because of reality, you had to put your dream in your back pocket for a while, but then you moved to Alaska. You met the Boy Scouts. You play tested it with them. They kind of liked it, so then they put in all this extra energy to tell you to inspire yourself, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get the game back into production. So then you came to Kickstarter. Yep. Well, then we don't need to interview then. That's pretty much it then. That was a good story, man. Actually, I went through Kickstarter the first time, and we just made our goal. Just enough to uh, create the starter pack. And the game is similar to games like Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, Magic, but with a twist of Risk, Access and Allies, and, and Settlers. I like the video. You know, I watched the first one. I watched the second one. Now, I have a little bit of a question, or maybe it's a complaint, or maybe it's a question. I don't know which one to phrase it. Do you think that you'd be doing better the second time around on Kickstarter if you hadn't come back so soon? If you'd like, waited a few months or so and maybe finished off a few rewards or something like that, you know? That was uh, one of the things that people brought up. My problem is when I started producing them, I went to all these different conventions and people loved it. I was selling great with the starter pack. But all of a sudden they wanted more. They wanted more cards. And so I started producing cards. And I could wait until I go to more conventions and go to, uh, have it in a few stores and wait till I get into more stores. But these people are still asking constantly, where's when the next card's going to come out? Right. And so I wanted to be able to, to get them out so people could enjoy me some more, enjoy the collecting and, and reading about the people that you're playing with. These cards are not just nameless, faceless people. They're actually people from history, villains, heroes, weaponry, technology. Right. While you're playing, you can actually read about the people you're playing with. So you, become one with history. Now, how many people can play this game at one time? Uh, either two players or up to 20 players. I mean, it just takes a long time to get around the table. It actually works out great because our complete set is made out of five different starter packs. And so each one has 50 cards. And unlike our competitors of um, those other games, if you buy two packs, you get a completely unique set of cards instead of having duplicates. This sounds like a party game, am I right? Yeah, you're right. Now, how long did that go on? How long was your dream kind of like in your back pocket? I have a, I have a family, four kids, and so I had to get a, a job. Yeah, a real job. Yeah, a real job, like my wife said. I worked in construction in Colorado and then got laid off there because of the recession. Moved to Utah and was uh, down on the totem pole, so I was laid off there. and I was uh, out for about a year and a half. That's when I was able to go to my father's house when he had cancer, help him out for about a year. And just before he passed away, I went back and got, a, got another job, small, until I could raise the money to go up to Alaska, where I had a, a job up there. But all during that experience, it, it was always in the back burner. I wanted to get out. And so I got settled, and my debt paid off, and then I was ready. My condolences about your father and, and all that stuff, you know. That's a pretty sad story, man, but you kept trucking on and kept taking care of your family. and. I'm just one of those guys. That sounds like a country song, man. I'm just one of those guys. <laughs> Sounds like a country I song. I didn't lose my dog. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a good, my dog then left me. I'm just one of those guys. Now, if you're listening, you could be in the southern reaches of the country or you could be in Alaska where it may be cold. Check out Historical Conquest, the booster packs. Go to kickstarter.com, check it out for yourself, check out the video, and... See if you'd like to contribute. And if you can't find it there, if you get lost, all I really have to say is at djgrandpa.com, we'll have all the links that Zach needs to help all of you guys check out his project. Zach, thanks for coming on the show, man. And I wish you and your family the best, man. And I hope that your dreams speed up, pick up the noise, the volume, all of that. And you get what you want. Thank you so much, DJ Grandpa. Duh, it's the Zero Hour with Todd Broadwater. It's like the bewitching hour. It's like it's like it the is. end of the road. Survival of the fittest. Survival horror card game. It's that last hour before death. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, DJ Grandpa. I'm happy to be here. 
Now, could you tell me about this game? Because it has kind of this whirling dervish type of music in the video, and, and it the, vi- the music totally sold it for me. It was an, like an old-fashioned Carney-style music that I felt was creepy and reminded me of kids and amusement parks and all that stuff that really terrifies people like down to the core. Yeah. When I set out to make the card game, I wanted to tell a story as much as scare the players into trying to keep themselves and their kids alive. And what they do is basically they control a group of kids that are lost in the woods and they have to survive until the sun rises. And in this situation, which the first deluxe game comes with, is a deck that has a creature called the Pale One. He is hunting and taking children at will. And your goal is to keep your group of kids alive, your group of survivors, until they make it to the end. And along the way, you encounter other smaller creatures, sounds and sights that scare you. And you find items and clues that enhance your experience being out there in the woods. And some of these things help you. Some of these things hurt you. Um, And you draw randomly. They're all nicknamed with pretty hilarious names like Bully and Class Clown and Fathead. And some of the old terms that were sort of uh, popular insults for kids at the time. I look for nicknames for kids around the 1920s, 1930s, which is what the game is based on, like photographs from that time period. So it has that sort of old world feel with real photographs of real people in a situation where these kids are on their way to a campground that's having a grand opening when a storm hits and their bus flies off the road and crashes and they're basically stranded without help and there's something out in the woods hunting them. It's cool because you never know what could happen. You could just be walking and there might just be wind and trees blowing or a shadow might reach out and grab one of your kids and pull them away in front of you and one of the other kids may panic, you know, like, and the other kid may wander off and find a lantern and come back and use that to try to to rescuing the child that was abducted in front of you. So it has this sort of organic storytelling structure to it that things can come about without really any structural story, but just fall within the mood and atmosphere that, you know, Zero Hour is going for. And your children are really into this game. Like, they they, they love it, or they're just so happy that Daddy's involved in this sort of behavior. They love it. They play it every night, and they fight over who is going to get specific kids that have the funniest names, and they get really arrogant when they're doing really well, and then they do a lot of crying once kids start disappearing from their deck. Of course they cry. They're children. It is children. Hold up. How many children do you start off with? How many children? You start off with, um, in a two-player game, you each have five children. Right. And then as it goes up, you each have a, a hand of five children. So you can have up to 30 kids that have crawled out of the bus <laughs> with six people playing at one time. <laughs> it's really cool. And it's cool because a few of those kids... Uh, you, the other kids don't know, but they're gifted. They have, like, psychic abilities. They can do things that the other kids can't. They have psychic abilities, so they know ahead of time that they're about to get snatched. That's that's very that's kind. Right. That's they very kind of you. step out of the way. <laughs> that's right. And let the weaker ones fall. Now, has your mind always been this uh, gifted, or, or is this just from years of warp from being in the gaming industry? <laughs> I think a little bit of both. I think a lot of time in the basement didn't help, and then moving myself in an office that's all dark, staring at TV screens, probably didn't help either. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're lucky to have a job, man. Most of those dudes yeah. who lived in the basement, they never got jobs. I think we might have lost a whole generation. That's what I'm saying. I think we lost a whole generation that way. Yeah, I know. I got lucky. You know, <laughs> I should set up my office to look like a basement. <laughs> That way, in case anything happens at work, it won't be a big surprise if I'm back in that element. All right, I got you, man. Uh, at least at least you seem very energetic and twisted, sort of. Yeah, I find it highly entertaining. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I, I can tell that you do, man. And I am yeah. always happy to be around someone who very much so enjoys their work. Even yeah, I how, love what I do. How Every twisted part of it. it. Yeah, yeah. I really do. And oh, for me, it's, it's all successful because it's all an experience. And, and in many ways, for me to create new things right. is the experience and the enjoyment. And to share those with people, I mean, the number doesn't matter, but the, the ability to share with people, period, is what really matters to me, whether or not it's 10 people or 1,000. Now, how many projects on Kickstarter is this for you now? 
This is my third. Third. Okay. So I did a, a, a line of figures before that called Legendary Monsters, which is similar. It's basically the old sort of urban legends of monsters that you read about or heard about that are all those told stories from Mothman, the Jersey Devil, to Bigfoot and Yeti, and, and I made a line of figures based on those. Wow, you're just having yeah. fun on Kickstarter. Yeah, I'm having a good time. Man, when you and I meet, man... We got an arm wrestle, man, something like that. Yeah, that's right. Punch each other in the <laughs> like arm that. or something like that. You know, I, I hear that's the way you right. bond, man. I hear that's, that's the way right. you... <laughs> enough. For anyone out there on Kickstarter, I'm telling you, Todd is dangerous. Yeah, I'm quite squirrely. <laughs> He's very squirrely. Check out his Kickstarter, and there will be a very creepy story for you to watch and listen to. It's called Zero Hour. The survival horror card game. And um, it, I really liked it, man. The music sold it for me. It was kind of like Beetlejuice or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, so if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links, even though it's not Halloween. But we'll start ahead of time. Todd, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. It was a pleasure. It really was. Oh no, I see the spikeism. Good to see you, dude. What's up? Just wanted to say hello, welcome to DJ Grandpa's crib. How you doing? Pretty good, man, and uh, it's good to see you. I just finished watching your Bloomberg interview there with that lady. Can't remember her name right now, but that was pretty exciting. I guess my first question is, first question would be, how's it feel to be on Kickstarter? How are they treating you? It's education, never done this before, but we're having fun. We're picking up momentum. And we're not going to stop till the last day. So we're looking to, you know, to exceed our goal. That's what we're working for. Oh, you're going to make your goal. I looked at the numbers, man. So that looks, that, it looks really good for you. I'm glad you feel that way. But <laughs> we're not doing any end zone dance till we reach that one million two fifty. That's true. You can't. Can't you do can. it. Can't do it. We're getting four or five hours of sleep. Everybody on the grind, not just me, everybody here at 40 Acres on the Mule. We got a team, street team. And I also got to thank all the people, the over 3,000 people who backed us so far to get us over $700,000. I saw on your Kickstarter video, your interest was peaked after you saw the Veronica Mars and the Zach Braff. Yes. What did you think about Kickstarter before then? Well, before, it was just something that my students used to get the completion funds for their thesis films, but the sums were like, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000. I never considered it as a vehicle to finance one of my films. I believe it was after the Million Man March when you did the Get on the Bus with him? Get on the yeah. Bus. You did like an unconventional way of raising the... Well, that wasn't me, but uh, Ruben Cannon, one of the producers, he just went to some prominent African-Americans, males, and asked them to put it for the money, and that's how that movie got financed. It just seemed like kind of a barn raising, kind of like the way Kickstarter, some people have referred to it as a barn raising. Well, here's the thing, though. People, and this is no disrespect to Yancey and Perry, the co-founders and creators of Kickstarter, but people have been doing Kickstarter a long time. It's just that there was no such thing as the internet, so you couldn't have social media. Right. Social media was what we did on She's Gonna Have It, calling people up on the phone, Luckily, I was before call ID, writing letters, writing postcards, and just getting out there and drum up the support you need to do your art. If you had to like write a book or a novel with a screenplay or something, Spike Lee and where he is at this moment in time, and I'm sure it's a stupid question or whatever. No, it's not a stupid question at all. I just don't know how to answer it. For me, I'm a very practical person. I don't try to look too far ahead. I definitely don't look behind me. And right now, we have 10 days to reach our goal. 11 days, really, to reach our goal. So that's where all our focus is on. We have a goal of $1,250,000. And if you don't reach your goal, you don't get nothing. You don't get squat. Nada. All right, the question comes up, uh, Spike Lee, why someone so big like you, Spike Lee, so why someone so rich like you goes to Kickstarter. And I'm not trying to get you to attack me either by telling me about your finances. I don't know because I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that no matter what I believe, the community of Kickstarter has already decided that when they funded Veronica Mars, they already decided that when they funded Zach Braff. So 
if you have a hundred million dollars in your pocket, they still believe that they have the right to vote for you or not vote for you because it's a community. Well, I wish I did have a hundred million dollars. And there are many times I financed my own films. In fact, the film Red Hook Summer, I saw finance. I did not know about Kickstarter back then. And Kickstarter is for everybody. The owners and the co-founders of Kickstarter says for everybody. And so this being America, here we are. No one is putting a gun in anybody's head. You feel that you cannot support Spike Lee because I'm too established, or you think that I'm a billionaire, that is your right. I just wanted to say thanks, man, because I've been watching you, I guess, since everybody's been watching you. So I guess everybody says that. How old were you in 86? I think I was a sophomore at Hampton University or something like that. You're a Hamptonian? Yeah, I got a beef with you about that. Though. Exactly. I don't even want to talk. <laughs> oh, man, man. Oh, my God. My favorite movie before I saw She's Gotta Have It was The Blues Brothers, Jake and Elwood Blues. I've watched it like a thousand times. Right. And then all of a sudden I hear about this black filmmaker. Everybody's like, we got to go support and we got to go see this cat. And we go to the theater and it's Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. And I'm like zoned at the screen. I'm like, oh my God, I may have a new favorite film of all time. I was like, I mean, I guess I fell in love. I don't know you because everybody said it, but I guess I fell in love with you from that sort of point of view back then. You know, I was like a Spike Lee fanatic until I got out of college or whatever. So, you know, I followed you to Howard and talked to you a couple times at conventions and stuff like that. I saw you go off on people about Aristotle and Greek uh, structure as far as plays and theatrics. And, <laughs> and you know, so it, it was funny, man, to see your, your life progress and stuff. And I'm not saying I'm not a fan of yours now. I'm just saying I, that I, I haven't really followed you since Mo Better Blues. And, you never saw Malcolm X? I don't even think I ever watched it, man. And that's no disrespect to you. Well, maybe you do take it as disrispect, but... And that, that's okay, I accept that. You can watch what you want to watch. But usually that's the one people don't miss, though. Not with Denzel Washington's performance as Brother Malcolm. That's the one. Man, I didn't get into Denzel until Netflix a couple years ago. I, I guess to make a long story short, my um, this doesn't even add up, but my beef with you <laughs> from Hampton was... We would watch Spike Lee movies, and he'd be like, Howard, Spellman, Morehouse, and everybody in the theater would be waiting for him. And Hampton, he would just pass by Hampton Fisk, and we'd be like, oh, come on, man. And what does he have, something against Howard? It was like, didn't, you know, it's like, didn't part of his relatives go to Hampton? Um, my wife's, both her parents went to Hampton, and her sister. I love all historical black colleges. Maybe I just had to split my mind at that moment. And I love your sister, man. I mean, it was the hair that got me. <laughs> you aren't the only one. <laughs> so that's it, man. I, I, those are all my admissions to you, man. You made two of the, my most famous products of all time. You did She's Gotta Have It, and then you did Spike Meets Flay. Oh, the special 12-inch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are two of my favorite joints of all time. I think it's funny. Somebody played it for me. We slapped the guy had done that. So anyway, I want to thank you for that. So anybody out there, I know this has been a conflicted interview. I've been all over the place, but I'll sew it together. Nah, you're doing your thing, baby. I'm with you. I'm with you. you know, I'm appealing to everybody. Kickstarter.com for as little as $5. Get down with us. Let's go. Get down. This is the movement. We're making history. For little as $5, every amount you pledge, there's a different reward for that. Let's make it happen. Dude, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for, just thanks for all you've done over the last 20, 30 years, man. Three decades, baby. Three decades. Three decades. It's been a pleasure to watch it, period. Three decades in the making. And someone told them, they were like, you're talking to an icon there. You're talking. I was like, oh, now I got to call Spike an icon? It's like, yeah. I was like, God. Maestro. <laughs> Maestro, the taste tester. <laughs> Nah, that's what they call me in Italy. Maestro, maestro, maestro. All right. Because as filmmakers, we're conducting. That's true. All right, dude, I know you're busy, and I'll see you later, and, and wish you the best in the film industry. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's Crypt. Thanks to Theron Kennedy, 
our director of marketing, and to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Aaron Levine, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AFC. Thank you.